Welcome to season two of The Change Alchemist. I'm delighted to have Daniel Burris, who the New York Times has described as one of today's top three business gurus. Daniel Burris is a New York Times bestselling author, technology futurist, business advisor, author and public speaker in the areas of business strategy, global trends, and disruptive innovation. He has also written seven books, including um, The Anticipatory Organization, as well as Flash Foresight. He's a public speaker and has delivered thousands of speeches as a professional speaker and has more than a million subscribers on LinkedIn. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Daniel, you have been named one of the top three business gurus by New York Times. You've consulted with companies like Cisco, like PwC. Welcome to the Change Alchemist. Daniel, it's such a pleasure and honor to have you. Oh, real pleasure to be with you. So the list goes on and on and on. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Your career journey has been somewhat non-linear would love to dive into what got you started. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, it's very, been very nonlinear, definitely. I started out teaching uh, biology and physics and uh, really enjoyed that. And I did that for a number of years, but I also was entrepreneurial. And I had an idea for an airplane design. And one of the summers I uh, built, test flew it. And within a year I had 37 national locations. So it turned out I had a knack for business. And I started another company and another one, another one. And within three years, I had four different companies. Uh, they were all profitable in the first year, national leaders. It turned out I was good at business, but I missed the teaching part. Because I think the two most important moments in a human's life is the day you're born and the day you find out why you were born. And I was put on the planet to teach, which I plan on doing in this podcast as well. And so... What, what I did was I sold those businesses and started Burris Research 38 years ago now. And what we do is research global innovations in all areas of technology, lasers, robots, genetics, fiber optics, nano, all of those things, genetic engineering, and came up with some methodologies. I've written seven books about it, literally thousands of articles over the decades about where the future is going, where technology is going, but more importantly, empowering people to take positive action based on where all of these things are taking us. You've written seven books. That's a feat in itself. Plus <laughs> you, you have a ton of speaking opportunities that you do, and you've consulted with so many companies. I don't know where you find the time, but let's talk about your first book. Was that Technotrends? Well, actually, Technotrends was number five, but I will talk about Technotrends because that was one of the ones that you're familiar with. That was written uh, in 1993, and it was a huge book. And basically, in that book, if you take a look at it, uh, you see social media in there, you'll see smartphones in there, you'll see much of what we have today and more in that book. And I was using a methodology that I want to teach this group that's with us today, because instead of just saying, hey, I'm cool and I'm good at forecasting the future, 
Uh, I want to teach others how you can do that as well. One of the things that I did with that book launch of Technotrends, I just got to mention, it's kind of fun. When that book was getting launched, it was a Harper Business book, and it was their lead book for that year. And I was speaking at the American Booksellers Association. There were 10,000 bookstore owners in that speech. And in the speech, you can still get the audio tape of that. <laughs> I said that uh, within just a couple of years, you're going to see a virtual bookstore. And if you listen to what I said, I was describing what Amazon became. Now, of course, I couldn't predict it would be called Amazon. I couldn't predict who had found it. Those are the things you have to leave out. But I could predict that it would happen because the tools to do it were already there. And that's part of, again, the methodology uh, by the way, I also made a little comment in that speech saying that any of you could do this. I don't think any of you will because you're all too busy selling books in the normal way. It'll <laughs> take somebody from the outside. And therein lies an important question for our listeners today. And that is, why didn't a taxi driver start Uber or hotels start Airbnb? And that's because they were too busy doing what they've always done. So it's important for us to step back not just be crisis managers putting out fires, not just be agile, quick reactors to disruption and change, but to learn how to be what I call anticipatory. Which uh, brings us to your latest book, The Anticipatory Organization, which you wrote before the pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah it came out before the pandemic, exactly. And not surprising, given that you're a strategist and a futurist. So, the anticipatory organization talks about hard trends and soft trends, and you actually lay out a framework for businesses to be at, not just agile, but also survive and thrive and be future-proof. So talk to us a little bit about the book, the tools, and the frameworks. Yeah, exactly. As you might guess, when I'm talking with uh, Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 or 150 organizations and their leaders, most of them have an agile strategy in place. And of course, what I'm wanting them to do is to learn also how to be anticipatory. So the way I've explained it is think of our strategy to deal with all of these transformational changes as a two-sided coin. One side is a reactionary side. And the fastest reactionary part of that is to be agile. Because if you look at what agility is in sports, where the term came from, or any of the definitions, agility is reacting as quickly as you can to a problem after it occurs, reacting as quickly as you can to a disruption after it disrupts. And I'm saying you need to be able to do that and you need to get better at that because there are a lot of things you can't predict. You need to be agile. But that's only one side of the coin I'm bringing the other side of the coin, which is learning how to anticipate problems before you have them, so you can pre-solve them. Anticipate disruptions before they disrupt, so that you have disruption as a choice. You can either be the disruptor or the disrupted. What I'd like you to do is to have some choices. And as a matter of fact, what I really would like is for everyone that is listening to this to become what I would call a positive disruptor. And let me just define that for people so you know what I'm talking about. Most of us think disruption is negative because it happens to us. And now we have to crisis manage and put out fires. But does Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, is he a crisis? Does he see disruption as negative? 
No, it's all the people he's disrupting. And you're in Silicon Valley, you know that, you've done a bit of disrupting yourself. So the reality is disruption is negative when it happens to you and now you're forced to change. But if you can see these, what I call hard trends coming, I'll talk about that in a minute, and you know that those are the disruptors, you can become a positive disruptor creating the transformations that need to happen to increase your relevancy, to accelerate your innovation, and to shape a better future for yourself and your organization. That's, um, that's amazing. So you don't have to be a Nostradamus to predict the future. You can be an anticipatory leader um, and you have a framework for this. And this framework sort of, does it take into account black swan events that happened last year, for example, or is it based on sort of a steady state of the universe? Oh, no, no. It, uh, matter of fact, even black swan events are predictable. Whoa, you didn't think I'd say that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yes, even the pandemic. Let's just take a look at what, what we have. Now, let's use the black swan metaphor as long as you brought it up. Imagine yourself right now at the shore of a big lake, big lake. And there are some white swans swimming around. And on the distant shore, there's some white swans, but there's a black swan heading right towards you on the distant shore. Are you, do you see it? Probably not. You're probably looking at the white swans that are close to you. Most of us aren't looking farther out. Most of us look close in, in terms of the future. We're not looking that far. Now, that black swan is swimming right towards you. And it gets really close before you notice. But those of us that have learned how to see the other side of the shore can see it. For example, and I am a uh, advisor to the Joint Chiefs and, uh, and I do a lot of work with the DOD and so on. We could tell from satellites back in December and, Jan and early January that China was having big problems with COVID. You could see the dealing with all of the people who had to bury. You could even tell uh, the smoke in the air from uh, you know, the burning bodies and so on. And you could even tell what that smoke was. In other words, it, that swan was visible. We knew it was there. And it wasn't until March that most people became aware of it when it was swimming like right there in front of you. <laughs> but it was there to see. So when I was a kid and I was in high school, there was a, a near, I was in like a sophomore and I couldn't drive yet, but there was a kid two years older that could drive and he loved to tinker. And he put aircraft landing lights on the brights of his car. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we went out one night driving and had the regular lights on. Then he threw the aircraft landing lights on and whoa, it's amazing what was invisible that I could now see. What this anticipatory hard trend methodology does is it gives you those aircraft landing lights. It lets you see farther out and make sure that you don't just look every now and then because disruption and change has been accelerated by the pandemic. The pandemic forced everyone on a global level to change. And because people don't like the change and businesses are run by people. So we change when we have to, only when we're disrupted. But the pandemic forces to change, forces to go digital. And that's why e-commerce and uh, so many other technologies, actually I've got over 16 that have been accelerated between eight and 10 years in a matter of months. These technologies were around before 
but they were, and by the way, there's some PACS work and we'll get back on work in a minute. Sure. Yeah. But, but working remotely, hey, wow, we could have done that before, but it was accelerated by 10 years easily and many others. By the way, when you have beyond exponential acceleration of technology, you have beyond exponential acceleration of opportunities. Yes. The opportunity is bigger than it ever was ever before right now. So how do you see it? And if you'll give me a minute, I'll describe the hard trend, soft trend very quickly because that'll lay a context for the rest of our discussion. So there is no shortage of trends. <laughs> no, there's tons of trends. The problem is which ones will happen and when? And what I've done based on my 28 years, or pardon me, 38 years of research is come up with uh, a way of separating trends into one of two categories. They're either a hard trend based on what I call a future fact, something we know will happen. I'll give you examples in a minute. So these are future facts. They cannot be changed. They will happen. Or they are soft train trends. And they're based on an assumption that might or might not happen. Now, again, I didn't say they won't happen, but they're not a future fact. They're an if or a maybe about the future. And I love both, by the way. The trend by itself has no advantage. You have to attach an opportunity to it to burst into actionable life. So there's two things that I'm teaching everyone right now. All trends are either hard or soft. So when somebody talks about a trend, is it based on a future fact? Again, more on that in a minute. Or is it an assumption? And secondly, it has to be tied to an opportunity. So the opportunity of a soft trend is, if you don't like it, you can change it. The opportunity of a hard trend is, you can see problems before you have them and pre-solve them. You can see disruptions before they disrupt. So one last comment, then I'll let you ask me some questions. Uh, and that is, there are three categories of hard trends. Again, I'm trying to make it easy for people. Sure. One is technology, which is amazingly predictable. It's amazing. I mean, if you look at my seven books and literally thousands of articles, I've been right because I leave out the parts I can be wrong about. <laughs> and and, I, and uh, there's so much you can be right about. That's the thing. So technology is one. For example, we had 3G, 4G, we've got 5G wireless now. Is that it? No, we all know it'll be 6G and 7G. And if you follow the graph of when it came out, you even know what it's gonna be, how powerful it is and when it will happen. It's predictable. We're putting a lot in the cloud. Is the cloud getting full? No, we're gonna put more in the cloud. And, and if you don't like AI, can we just turn off all AI and not have it anymore? No, it's going to get exponentially greater in beyond exponential. The key is how do we use it and make sure we solve predictable problems before they happen. So technology is one of three. Second one is demographics. There are 68 million baby boomers in the United States and there are baby boomers in India, there are baby boomers all over the world. There are some countries that have very young populations, but in the case of the United States with 68 million, they're not going to get younger. They're going to continue to age. And that gives us some predictable problems we could either pre-solve or let them happen. And it gives us some opportunities because they're aging. So you have demographics, huge. And it's not just baby boomers. It's 
all ages have amazing opportunities because of the uniqueness of the demographic. And then the last one is, and this will really surprise everyone, government regulations. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's kind of surprising is you might think you can't predict government regulations. It's so political. But the reality is, yes, you can. You just can't predict all of it. For example, will we have more regulations on cybersecurity? Well, yeah. Why? Because there's some hard trends at play that, that different parties can't ignore. But then there's some things they can debate. So when a regulation comes out, regardless of what country you're in, we always look at what we don't like about it. But one of the principles that I teach is opposites work better. Ask yourself, what do you like? And you'll find not only opportunity, but funding for that new regulation. So three categories, all trends are either hard or soft, and, and they both have opportunities. Soft, you can change. Hard, you can become the positive disruptor and really turn change into an opportunity. Now, I bet you've got some questions about work and the workforce. Oh, <laughs> I'm absolutely. predicting the future already. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> absolutely. I think there are ramifications for leaders that you advise, I think, uh, from all walks of life, including government. But there's also ramifications for employees, right? So oh, I'd yeah. like you to I'd like you to sort of delve into why the hard and soft trends are important for employees too, not just leaders, because leaders need to plan, they need to do strategic planning. But let's say I'm reading your book and maybe as a creator, as a as an individual, how do these trends impact my life? All right. Number one, you're going to spend the rest of your life in the future, not in the past. So that means maybe we should think about it a little bit. And a lot of us get busy and we can busy ourselves, by the way, right out of business. And what I'm suggesting is I want you to be a, not a passive receiver of the future as it unfolds. I want you to be an active shaper of your personal future, of your family's future of your career. By the way, every person listening right now and watching this, your definition of your job is already obsolete. It's already obsolete right now. I don't care what your job is right now. Look at what the, how it's defined. It fits where we've been, not where we're going. Now, either you can let someone else give you your new definition, which you may not like, or you can, I'm saying, use these hard trends to come up with what is your future? What is relevant? What would increase your relevancy? Because you're either going to be more relevant or less relevant. You can't coast. You're either going to be the disruptor or the disrupted. There is no middle. So I would like you to disrupt your own career using hard trends so that you can elevate your relevancy and your impact on others, regardless of what it is. And these hard trends impact all of us because they involve physical, our physical bodies, there's health, there's involve our tools that we use, whether it's a smartphone or a Wi-Fi or walking on a smart sidewalk. In other words, technology is inside of us even. How many people have implants or whatever right now? We're kind of already bionic in a way. Uh -huh. So you can't escape technology, but you can use it to create uh, a better tomorrow. And by the way, technology is not good or evil. It's how we apply it. 
It's how we humans apply it. You can use the same tool to give someone cancer as to cure it. Depends on what we decide to do with it. So if you think uh, social media is bad and working and not doing well, or you think AI is horrible, it's not the tool, it's how we decide to use it. And, how, and I want all of us to use it to create a much better tomorrow. And we can do that. that is such a positive message. And this show is called The Change Alchemist because I believe that we have agency in shaping our future. And I'm glad that despite what the hard trends say or the soft trends say, we still have agency over our future. And I think it's good to be aware of what trends are shaping the world so we can shape our own futures. And this kind of brings me to an interesting uh, question about nonlinear careers, right? A lot of us have single points of failure. For those of you that are Star Wars uh, fans, uh, the Death Star had a fatal flaw, right? When a torpedo hit a part of the, the trenches, the Death Star could get destroyed because of a chain reaction. And in a similar way, a lot of us have fatal flaws. We don't realize that that single thing could become a, a point of failure. So I bring this because a lot of people are wedded to what we're doing today, and we think that's what we need to do for the rest of our lives. How do we apply this to defining our careers, our career trajectories? Uh, for example, AI is going to disrupt our world, I think. Uh, and Already there. <laughs> already there. So you, I'd love for you to talk about trends that are happening that our audience might be aware of, might not be aware of, that they could use to shape their careers? Well, it, it, again, we have many different careers in here. And I think that one of the things you want to step back, and you mentioned fatal flaws, mm -hmm. all right? <laughs> Let me just talk about fatal flaws just a minute. No matter what you look at, and I'm going to put it bluntly, everything sucks. Now, here's what I mean by that. This is the best we could do isn't there something better than Zoom? Is the chair you're sitting in the best it could be? Isn't there a better chair? Isn't there better lighting? Isn't there better something better than Wi-Fi? Isn't there something better than your job? In other words, if you look at it, everything has got flaws. And I love that. You see, perfection is impossible. If everything was perfect, if everything was flawless, and I'm including all humans in this. <laughs> If everything was flawless, everything was perfect, the world wouldn't need you and it wouldn't need me. There would be no way for us to have a positive impact. But because everything sucks, and I love it, everything can be made better, everything. So if you've got a product, you get got a service, whatever it is that your company and you are providing, frankly, it sucks right now. And that's great because there's many ways that you could make it far better. Your customer experience. You know what? It sucks right now. It could be much better. You're telling me it's perfect? No, it's not. What could you do to make it better? Let's make a list. Are there some tools we could use to increase engagement or make something more exciting? Sure. All, but you don't want a single point of failure, right? You want to be you don't want to be wedded to one thing in your career. Well, well the other thing that, yes, to take on that, when I started my, my first business, I was coming from being an educator, which means I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know about business. And there were two things that I did that really helped me 
get going fast because it was a fast launch and it worked out successfully very quickly, as I said earlier. Number one, I learned how to fail fast mm, because mm. I couldn't afford to fail slow. Great. And most of us fail slow. Those of us that have hired people, how many times have you hired people and you knew it wasn't going to work, but yet you kept dragging it on and dragging it on, failing slowly. By the way, that did not serve them either because you already knew it wasn't going to work and it, they should have been on to the next thing sooner. In other words, we get we fall in love with our ideas even. So failing fast, how do you fail fast? Well, I get into it in more detail in my anticipatory organization book, but very quickly, we have success metrics. I like to have failure metrics so that I know which direction I'm going so I can fail fast. Because when you fail fast, you learn fast. Failure and learning go together. So if something failed, you have to ask yourself right away, what did I learn from it? And so many people don't ask that so they don't learn from that failure. And here's one other thing in an organization. What if we all shared our failures and what we learned from them in our entire organization? You know what? We would fail a lot less and we'd learn a lot faster. I mean, that's by the way, that's an opportunity. <laughs> so failing fast was number one, really helped me a lot. And I do it whenever possible. And then number two is I knew that I didn't know how to compete. So I made sure that I didn't. I didn't. What I want to do is not what the other, what the competitors are doing. If I do what they do, I'll be competing with them. What I want to do is look at what aren't they doing? What didn't they think of? Are there some new tools they aren't using? Is there a way that I can disrupt what they think is the status quo? In other words, become the positive disruptor so that you become the competition. Like when I created my anticipatory leader learning system, that was an award winner when it first came out and has done really well. Well, what I did on that one was I asked myself, what are all the things that would cause it to fail? And then did, fixed them all first. Then I asked my ideal users, CEOs actually, and there are some direct reports, to them use them and tell me, what, do you, what don't you like about it? And what would make it better? Fix those and then did the big launch. In other words, I want to solve problems before they occur. Yeah, like someone said, feedback is the breakfast of champions. Exactly. So again, coming back to employees, let me give you a, a big concept for all of us, whether you're an employee or a leader. We tend to focus on success, personal success, organizational success. And I was giving, just before the pandemic, I was giving a big commencement speech. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were two points that I made in that that speech that I think work here. One of them was, I don't want you to live a successful life and be real successful and focus on success. Yeah. I'm sure that that freaked out all the parents. But the, what I said was success is all about you. Mm -hmm. It's all about your degrees, how much money you make, how cool your car is, where you live. It's all of those things. Success is about you. I would like you instead to live a significant life. Mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. significance is what you do for others. Mm -hmm. And if you are elevating your personal, this is you now as an individual, whoever you are, mm -hmm. as an organization, if you're elevating your significance every year, you'll find yourself very successful. Mm -hmm. Because so are you a, a significant employee? Are you a significant employer? By the way, are you a successful parent? Or are you a significant parent? You see, you could take it to so many different levels. 
So let's live significant lives and look at these tools because if we're helping others in our organization, if we're helping our customers, if we're lifting and elevating everyone, I'm gonna guarantee you're gonna be a very successful person. That is a very good reframing of success. And I would almost say that's a leadership concept that we can all employ whether we're people managers or even on a personal level. Um, exactly. Well, we have we all have a little bit of leader within. And, uh, you know, a matter of fact, I think we all have so much that we never even let out of ourselves. But I think part of life's journey is discovering what's inside of you. And you need to push some boundaries uh, so that you can discover all the amazing things that that you have yet to discover yeah. about yourself, regardless of your age. You mentioned, uh, Daniel, that there's been a huge unlocking of opportunity with the pandemic and there's massive opportunity and growth ahead of us. So could you expand on that comment? Absolutely. And, and as we look at the, uh, at the workforce and for example, working remotely, that was obviously the tools were there. Zoom existed before that, <laughs> but, uh, but all of a sudden we're all forced to do it. And the big question we're still trying to find out the answers to is, are people going back to the office? Are we all going back? And of course, there have been some Silicon Valley companies that have said no, others have said yes, and very, as well as all around the world. What's gonna happen? And what I would suggest is, one of the principles that I teach to help you be better at the future is what I call the both and concept versus the either or says the future is either we're all virtual or we're all in the office. Both and is we're virtual and in the office because we know the power of virtual now, but we're not gonna do virtual for everything. So instead of the office being a place that houses employees, we're going to have to rethink the office to say, what, do, what can we do in the office that would maximize innovation, communication, collaboration, the kinds of things that people do best when they're physically together and if we can do things better not together and do it better on Zoom, do it. In other words, I think there's a great opportunity to come up with some guidelines as to when to have an audio conference versus a video conference versus a live meeting versus uh, going to the office versus not. I think you'll find having some guidelines to maximize the human interface would be very, very wise and very powerful. So I see us having offices, but not used in, in the way that we just have in the past, but rather to elevate the human experience and actually increase productivity, increase innovation, and all these things, or we can go back to the way it was. <laughs> go back to the nine to five and go back yeah. to five days a week. Back, yeah, and you know, I ride a Harley Davidson motorcycle and one of the reasons I like it is there's no reverse. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a great tweet. So and you can't go back. We can't go backwards. You can only go forwards. So in going forwards, what does that mean for your career? If you can't go back, it means there's going to be some changes that I could make. And again, I'd like you to shape your own career as well as your impact in the organization, regardless of, again, what level you are in the organization. And certainty helps you to do that. You see, what certainty does for a leader or for an employee is it gives you the confidence to make bold moves. 
And hard trends can give you certainty. And there are thousands of them. Now, before you wrote the anticipatory organization, you wrote a bestseller, uh, The Flash uh, Foresight. Now, what was the genesis of that book? Yeah, the uh, subtitle of Flash Foresight is How to See the Invisible and Do the Impossible. And <clears throat> I've had, uh, I, a number of years ago, I had hired an ad agency to find out what do I do for people? I've been doing this for 38 years and I've given thousands of keynote speeches. I've consulted with leaders around the world. What, what is it that I do? So they surveyed people that, I've, that, that hear me and work with me and so on. And they came up with, first of all, you are a detonator. You detonate idea bombs in people's heads. They said that you help people see invisible opportunities and, and you help people see solutions to what seemingly are impossible problems. So based on that and the work that I'm doing with, whether it's with the CEOs of a, a Fortune 5 company or and their direct reports, which I've done work with, Usually I go in there and in not too much time, they get what I re think of as the holy cow moment where it's like, whoa, that solved a problem we could never solve. Or wow, you just gave us this huge opportunity. But remember, I'm a teacher. I don't wanna be the only person that can do that on the planet. Uh, that's, uh, I'd like to live a significant life. So I tried to take, what do I do when I'm with them in a matter of seconds could I break that into something bigger that I could teach? Could I break it down? And that's where I got flash foresight because uh, when you make the invisible visible, whether it's a new opportunity or whether it's a solution to a seemingly impossible problem, you get a flash of foresight that allow you, allows you to move forward when you were stuck before, thus flash foresight. So I've got seven triggers that uh, in that book that get you to make the invisible visible, allowing you to do the impossible and move forward where you couldn't before. So that was how that book came about is me just picking apart, how do I do what I do? And is there a way I can teach it to others? You know, it's, it's great that uh, you're able to teach it to other people. So it's uh, teaching people to fish. Exactly, thank you. That, you know, it's, uh, that's so important. And as a matter of fact, I know that's why you're doing this this podcast you're using this as a powerful tool because you have your you have a lot of your own wisdom that i know you bring to all of these as well as you pick people that can share their wisdom to to get to get people not just informed because there's a difference between data information knowledge and wisdom and what i want is the knowledge and wisdom which is the actionable part of those four levels and so congratulations for you doing significant work with this. Thank you, Daniel. That means a lot. Um, you've been not only successful, but also significant, I think, helping so many companies and organizations and leaders with, with your wisdom and with your books. Now, is there a superpower that you think you have that helps you be who you are? I think that I believe that we are all brothers and sisters on this planet. And I think I love traveling around and meeting my fellow brothers and sisters. And I also think that at birth, we were all connected. And I think that after we are born, we tend to separate more and more. And the more we draw apart from each other, the more we have 
problems and eventual wars. And I, I guess what I do is I see the that brother and sister connection. In other words, I love people. Okay. And I have a deep love for people, which is driving part of what makes me want to help people. And I'm talking to everybody. And it's and getting people to truly be anticipatory is a key to I believe what I can do because I've been able to do that with companies that weren't and converted them with individuals that weren't and got them to do it. Because if we aren't predicting predictable problems, if we aren't seeing those predictable problems and pre-solving them before they happen, we're not going to be happy campers on planet earth going forward. We, we can't just solve them when they happen. We've got to start seeing oh, that's going to happen and then Let's stop it in the first place. We could do that or not. I think we must, just like with all of these disruptive technologies. Remember, disruption is a choice. It's not a hard trend. It's a soft trend. You have a choice because you can see it ahead of time. But how can we use that tool to do something amazing and wonderful, to unite us, to create a more humane world? And if you've got a product or a service, you might think, I don't know how that fits in. Well, yes, it does, because we don't live in a technological world. We live in a human world. And it's all based on relationships. And relationships can be good and bad. Good ones are based on trust. And trust is earned through integrity and honesty, delivering on promises, values that all people around the world share. Everyone everywhere shares those kind of values. So you see, there's so much that unites us that gives us, frankly, opportunity to do significant work in shaping the future. And we just saw Branson go up and become an astronaut. Yep. And, and we know that uh, Moderna and Pfizer and uh, some of the other drugs uh, were developed in super short amounts of time, never record-breaking with using new technology. And if you think about it, hey, we put a man on the moon in the 60s. Talk about non-digital, they had analog devices in there, yet they got to the moon. In other words, humans can do impossible things. We've done it before. And you might ask me, am I an optimist or a pessimist? You already know the answer. <laughs> I'm an optimist. And you know why? Because pessimists never do anything. Why? They know it'll fail. Of course, I think there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic because as I said in the beginning of our interview, the pandemic forced us to change. It drove technological, digital, exponential changes beyond exponential levels, creating exponential opportunities for all of us, not just for big tech, not just for people with money, but for anyone. As a matter of fact, if you get flash foresight, you might want to read the end of that book first. It's called The Experiment. Because I talk about how when I was writing that book, we had the last recession when I started writing it. And uh, I think I just, I just went away for a second. I was writing it. And when I was writing that, <clears throat> I decided to start a company with no money and no employees and see how using the principles of the book to see how good the book is. And uh, it ended up, took eight months to generate uh, 1.2 million a month in recurring revenue. By the way, I was also writing a book. I gave 800 speeches that year and I was doing consulting. It wasn't like I was had free time. I was I so, thought you in were... other words, we can do this. There's ways of doing it and I and the principles for doing that are in that book. 
so I'm just saying, when you say, I don't have time, yes, you do. You just haven't made time. When you say that I, I have no money, that isn't the problem. As a matter of fact, another principle I teach in the anticipatory organization is, is whatever problem you've got, that's not it. There's another problem. So if you're saying money's my problem, it's probably always been your problem because that's not the problem and that's why you haven't solved it. It's something <laughs> else. So you, you go meta every time you go meta and then you've solved the problem. Yes, yes, you did. It's like an onion. You've got to peel it back to get down to the core to find what is the real problem. A very simple example is I have a niece, Hallie. She's got her first job, but she can't save any money. And she knows it's possible because her older sister, Audrey, can save money like crazy. Hallie can't save money. So she gave me a call and she said, Uncle Dan, I can't save money. I'm trying really hard to save money, really hard, but I can't save money. What do I do? And I said, well, you're working on the wrong problem. You need to be working on how you spend money. If you change how you spend money, you'll save money by default. You see, she was working on the wrong one, just like we all tend to work on the wrong one. So if you've got a problem right now that's been hitting and you, you're not sure how to deal with it, I'm suggesting that you skip it because that's not the problem at all. There's another one, find that one and you can solve it and move forward. I love that. That is such a contrarian uh, uh, piece of advice, but I, I bet no one thought about it, right? Because they're always they're, they're hitting, hitting on that problem with a hammer when it's not a nail, probably. Oh, oh I got a really good one for you. So uh, <laughs> this relates to a couple other things that we talked about. Um, this is uh, several years ago now. Uh, I was uh, meeting with the top 50 CIOs on the planet. And they all have you know, billion dollar IT budgets. These are the top 50 of the all globally. So they all have giant IT budgets. And uh, I gave them a speech for about 40 minutes and then we are all going to take a break and meet in a room where I would teach them some principles. So when they got in that room, um, I said, uh, I'm gonna teach you how to solve impossible problems so why don't we start by, why don't you give me your impossible problem and I'll solve it for you right now to show you how good it is. And then I'll teach you how to do it. Now you might think, wow, I mean, you said, give me your biggest problem that you can't solve and you're gonna solve it like that. And then, but how can you do that? Are you just thinking you're that smart, Dan? And I'm saying, no, I got a process. I got a way to do it. So there was a guy over in the corner, I can see him today. Uh, he raised his hand. I didn't realize he was the biggest of them all at the time because I didn't even know what organization he was with. And he said, I got a problem. And uh, I said, okay, what is it? And he said, uh, well, I'm the uh, CIO of the uh, uh, Department of Defense, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, the whole shoot and match. I've got all the tech of the whole thing. Uh, by the way, there uh, the IT department of the Air Force is 57,000 people, just to give you an idea, all right? And that's just one branch, little branch. So he says, it's a huge thing. And he says, here's my problem. I've got to get all of my legacy systems into the cloud as quickly as possible. And that's a lot. That's my biggest problem, all right? And here's what I said to him. I said, well, let me get this straight. If you get all of your legacy systems into the cloud, won't you just have a legacy cloud? 
And he did what you did. He laughed. And he thought, well, I guess that's not it. And I said, exactly. And then we started getting down to what his real problem was. And, and you see where I'm going. So, and I ended up doing a lot of work with him from that. But my point being that whatever problem you got, even if it's giant like that, you probably got it framed in your mind all wrong. That's why you can't solve it. All problems are solvable. Do you find common themes with all these Fortune 50, 500 leaders or have they changed after COVID? What, what's been your experience? Well, it depends on the industry and it depends on the company. Some are still in a crisis mode because remember the pandemic created some amazing opportunities for companies and it also created some amazing hardships. Think of a restaurant, for example. So it created some amazing hardships, some amazing opportunities, and it was not evenly divided at all. So it depends on which side, but also remember when something good happened, something bad happened. So those that had tremendous opportunities had problems. And by the way, those that had problems, there were opportunities for them as well. Problem is they were too busy with the problem to notice the opportunity. So again, there's two sides to all of this. And it's good to look at both the up and the down when something happens. So in this case, either they're in, still in crisis with a crisis mentality, trying to get back to the way it was. There still are companies in that mindset, trying to get back to the profitability we had before. And that means doing what we did before to have that profitability. Therein lies the problem in that thinking. The reason? The world's changed. The world's not the same. We're different. So the, either they're having difficulty with it and having trouble rallying their troops because they're being reactionary versus anticipatory, or they are getting it, seeing the opportunity and uh, siphoning through to get to what the best ones to act on are. And as a leader, my advice to leaders and managers would be to give your opinion less. Why? Because when I give you my opinion, no matter who I am, you're gonna say thank you and you're gonna go get another opinion. But as a leader or a manager trying to get people to take action on what you're saying, if they see it as an opinion, they may not be fully into taking action. They may have the, this too will pass mentality. You know, we'll just wait for you to get replaced and then we'll be back to where we were and everything's good again. Instead, what I'd like you to do then, uh, instead of giving your opinion, is to learn to speak more in future facts, meaning stating things that are undeniable truths that they know when they hear it, they know, yeah, for sure. And then base what you're talking on after that, it isn't about an opinion anymore, you're speaking in future facts. I mean, again, you could go to Burris, B-U-R-R-U-S dot com and get more information on that, read the book to get more on that. But it's a powerful principle because then you get people that have the confidence to make bold moves when you're speaking in future facts. So does future facts also include having a definite point of view then? Well, a point of view, once again, I think it's real important to know what is an opinion, mm -hmm. which is kind of a point of view, right? versus a future fact. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with opinions and views, uh, but it, again, 
your opinion may not be shared. It's kind of like even there's a difference between truth and trust. I may trust somebody that does that did not say the truth. <laughs> you see what I mean? I so, see what you mean. Yeah. So um, so it's you know you got to separate again. What is a is that a future fact? And and then there are opinions. And one of the things that I talk about when it comes to opinions is that those are really a lot of those are based on assumptions, and some assumptions have been researched and some have not. I call them hard and soft assumptions. So a soft assumption is makes sense to me, but you didn't research it, meaning there's more risk to that assumption, or it's an assumption that you have done research on. So for example, if you're getting your news from the internet, which a lot of people do, you have to assume a lot of it is not good, not accurate. So uh, it's because it's through the internet, anybody can sound like anybody. So I would say it's as a leader and a manager, we owe it to the people that we serve to double check and do our own fact checking before we share what's going out there so that those assumptions and opinions have been researched and are elevated to a higher level. And, and where can people find more information about you, your books, your uh, speeches? I, I think yeah. you're all over the place, but I would I'm love all to over. Well, I've got a, <laughs> uh, you know, over a million followers on LinkedIn because I'm sharing a lot. You could join me on LinkedIn, Daniel Burris. You could go to burris.com, B-U-R-R-U-S.com. And there you could find my uh, learning systems and uh, more about books. Of course, you can go to Amazon and put in Daniel Burris and you'll get... Uh, Frederick Trove of things there as well. So, but the biggest thing that I want you to do in leaving is what I said a while ago, that hour a week, take time to shape your future rather than just let it unfold. No matter what level you are in business, you'll find that to be very positive. Thank you, Dan. That was such a pleasure. And thanks for joining me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist. If you enjoyed the show, Follow me on Twitter at Shobhanavi. Subscribe on iTunes or any platform of your choice. Send me feedback and tell a friend if you enjoyed listening to the show. Thank you and see you next week.